I love uh, preaching God's Word. Some Sundays, because of the material in the Bible, I'm just honestly a little more excited than other Sundays. Some Sundays I'm a little more cautious, nervous, well, how's this going to go? How am I going to handle this? But this Sunday, man, I want you to know I'm flat out excited because we're going to talk about one of the most important, important aspects of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, and that is faith. Today I want to talk to you about the subject of faith, your faith, because faith is to your soul what oxygen is to your body. But for starters, I want to debunk, I want to tear apart this popular misconception in the West today that goes something like this. Only religious people exercise faith. Only religious people. And I want to say nothing could be further from the truth. Why? Because all humans, even the most secular, the most atheistic, exercise faith. Because if it's not faith in God, it's faith in oneself, one's intellect, one's understanding, one's karma, one's work, one's family, one's friends, I don't know, one's dog, one's cat. We all exercise faith. Every time you sit in a chair, every time you eat a meal, every time you drive a car, or ride on a train, fly in a plane, order something, purchase something online, you are exercising faith. We all do. And this notion that non-Christians have of themselves which runs like this, because I'm a uh, non-Christian, I'm more skeptical and scientific and therefore rational, as opposed to you Christians who are fundamentally religious and therefore irrational, that notion is totally irrational. Because all of us every day continually exercise faith. And as a matter of fact, Christians just happen to be more open and honest about it. All of us exercise faith. Now today we come in our series in 1 John to a delightful little package, passage, I guess it's a package, a couple verses I want to particularly point out in 1 John chapter 5, right on the front end of this significant passage that talk about uh, the beauty the joy and the power of faith. So let's begin in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 1. Where we read, everyone, everyone who believes that, now notice there's a content to faith, everyone who believes that, believes what? Believes that Jesus is the Christ, is born of God. Everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And here we have this fascinating statement I'll come back to, and his commands are not burdensome. Why? Because everyone born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. 
Now here we find three distinctives. I want to point out three distinctives of Christian faith. First of all, it's rooted in Christ. Second, it delights in obedience. Yes, you heard me say that. It delights in obedience. And third, it overcomes the world. Now you young singles that are here, or divorcees, or widows, or widowers, as Paul Tripp says in his daily devotional, New Morning Mercies, if you are God's child, you are deeply loved by God today. And even if in your human relationships, you are alone, you are never alone. You are completely loved by the God of the universe. Now, let me ask a question of that statement. How do you know you're not alone? How do you know you're loved by God? And the answer is by faith. Because faith is confidence. Faith is dependence. Faith is assurance that God is good, that God is wise, that God has a plan for my life, and that God loves me in Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1 says, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. So let me illustrate it this way. Let's say you have a baby, the baby is six months old, and you walk out of the room. From the baby's perspective, you are completely gone. Uh, but that young child grows and matures and is now five, six, seven years old, and you walk out of the room. And the child, in his or her growing maturity, uh, knows you are just in the next room. That's faith. Faith is knowing God is in the next room. Actually, to be more accurate biblically, faith is acknowledging God has never left, that the God dwells inside us. The Bible teaches all three persons of the Trinity dwell inside the believer. And faith acknowledges that. Faith is God has never left me no matter what I'm going through, uh, what I'm doing. So now let's look at these first three distinctives to line out what Christianity teaches about faith. And the first is this, the first distinctive, faith is rooted in Jesus Christ. So look at verse 1. This is the first part of verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. John says essentially the same thing a little differently in verse 5. And then what's interesting, beginning in verse 6 through verse 12, he gives us a series of proofs or testimonies that Jesus is, in fact, God. Now, what I want to do is I want to zero in on this first sentence in verse 1. Because I want you to understand what John is saying, teaching about Jesus, is that Jesus is fully God. Deity, that's what the term Christ means. That he is the Messiah, Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one. And if you back up to chapter 4 and verse 10, we discover he is the anointed one who was the atoning sacrifice for our sins by dying on the cross. Now, I want to say two things about this sentence. A number of commentators, actually, I was surprised by the number of commentators 
point out that the word believe, the verb believe here, is in the present tense. So it would be technically more accurate to translate this, everyone who is believing, who is continuing to believe, Everyone who is believing that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. In other words, everyone who is believing demonstrates that he or she has already been born of God. And the point the commentators make is what John is teaching is that salvation is completely and totally of God. Because you are believing you have been born of God. Now look how the uh, famous British preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones once put this. I love his statement about this. He says, the first thing we must get rid of is the idea that what makes us Christian is anything that we have produced or anything for which we are responsible. How ready we are to think of being a Christian is a result of something that we do. I live a good life, therefore I'm a Christian. I go to a place of worship, Therefore, I'm a Christian. I do not do certain things, therefore, I'm a Christian. I believe, therefore, I'm a Christian. The whole emphasis is upon myself, upon what I do. But here, the entire emphasis is not upon man and his activity, but upon God, he who gives birth, he who produced, he who generates, he who gives life and being. Thus, we see that we cannot be a Christian at all unless God has done something to us. In other words, what John is saying in this first sentence is that faith is not merely rooted in God, it comes from God. And I don't know how this works out for you, but I want you to know as a man that I have found profound security and assurance and confidence in this because what this means is from the beginning to the end, I am totally in God's hands, not the hands of my fickle faith. Even my faith comes from God, not from me. Everyone who is believing that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Now let me go on. Let me talk for a minute, that's the word believe, let me talk for just a minute about this word Christ. What does it mean to believe that Jesus is a Messiah? Well, it means that our faith rests on a person, not a doctor, not an abstraction, not an institution, but on the person, of the person, Jesus Christ, who is a Messiah. Now, now what does Messiah mean? It means that Jesus Christ is the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. And you know that in your heart. So, for example, to believe that Jesus is the ultimate prophet means you believe he is the ultimate revelation from God. That his words are true because he is true. He is the prophet. It means that you believe he is your priest, the ultimate priest, who has come not to offer sacrifices of grain and animals like the Old Testament priests did, but to offer himself. I'll go, I'll die for them. And finally, it also means you, you believe that Jesus is the king. 
your king, who is reigning in heaven right now. To believe that Jesus is king means you rest in his sovereignty, you submit to his authority, and you enjoy his presence. You rejoice in him. It means you hate what he hates, you love what he loves. It means you understand you are not the king. You are not in control in this circumstance. You are not in control in this life. He is the king. He is in control in this particular circumstance. He is in control of your life. Man, before I came to Christ, I so believed I was the king. And I thought I was a good king. I was a king over my life. Then the spirit began to work in my life. And I, I, I pressed into the teaching of Jesus, and I began to read books. I began to read the, the Gospels. I had conversations with people that were really uh, sharp. And one day, I, I can't explain it to you, I woke up and I realized I was no longer the king, but Jesus is the king. And he is my king, and I was born of him. I was born again. Do you believe that Jesus is your prophet, your priest, and your king? John is saying that's what it means to be a Christian. And I don't mean just abstractly, theoretically, but I mean functionally, boots to the ground. Does the fact that Jesus is your prophet, your priest, your king impact what you do with your time, how you spend your money, what you do on weekends, what you say, uh, how you handle yourself in the marketplace and work? Let me go on. Distinctive number two. What does Christianity teach about faith? Well, John is telling us that Christian faith delights in obedience. Now, this is almost, almost the hardest of the three to get our mind around. Because what John is saying is that following Jesus is not a duty, it's a delight. A delight. Look at these six words at the end of verse 3. And his commands are not burdensome. What? Not burdensome? This is so counterintuitive for us as Christians, so countercultural for us who know Jesus Christ, because the world tells us joy and freedom are found in the absence of restrictions, in being able to do whatever you want to do. But John is saying, no. That's chaos. You can't live that way. A family can't order themselves that way. A society wouldn't survive living that way. Then John adds something crazy here. And I'm emphasizing this because I don't want you to miss this. He is saying joy is in obedience. Now follow John's logic beginning in verse 1. John is teaching that in the new birth, we receive a new nature. 
And that is demonstrated, that new nature is demonstrated in our love for God and our love for others. That's verses 1 and 2. Then we come to the end of verse 3, and what John is implying here is out of our new nature come new desires, new priorities, and new values. So we value and treasure God above everything and everyone. Now look at what John Piper says. Little sentence, but profound. He says, what you desire to do with your whole heart is never burdensome to do. And John says his commands are not burdensome. Now let me illustrate this. For me, it's barefoot water skiing, it's snow skiing. You never have to force me to do those two. I love them. It's a a mother with a a young baby, a a newborn. You don't have to force her to take care of that baby. That baby is the delight of her heart. Uh, You don't have to force me to take Rhonda on a date. It's my delight. And sometimes it's hers. Sometimes. How much more so with God? Do you delight in obeying God, honoring God, and and serving God in light of all that he has done for you? Well, if you struggle with this, here's why. The reason is your faith gets stuck in your head and it's not moving from your head to your heart. And you're not pressing into your heart the wonder, the majesty, the glory of what Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross and his resurrection, what Jesus Christ is doing for you right now, what Jesus Christ will do for you throughout eternity. That's a head thing. You're not pressing it into your heart. So his commands for you are burdensome. It's the antithesis of what John is teaching should be the experience of a Christian. And it has everything to do with your heart. Look at these two verses from Psalm 119. Psalm 119 and verse 24. Your statues are my delight. They're my counselors. They're where I find wisdom. Now let's go to... um, Verse 47, for I delight in your commands because I love them. I love them. I I delight in them. Can you say that? Now let me press pause. Why is it such a struggle to be able to live this way? Answer. Because our Jesus is small. And what he has done for us hasn't captured the passion and imagination of our hearts. And what captures our hearts, frankly, are the, our jobs, our kids, our stuff, our travel, the stock market, on and on. And so we, even as Christians, 
come to Christ, and then we begin over time, and it becomes a subtle thing to live horizontally, not vertically. And our Jesus is small, our faith is small, and our joy is small. John says his commands are not burdensome, they're a delight. And the reason our Jesus and our faith and our joy is small is because, again, we're not intentional about pressing the wonder of the gospel, our union in Christ, into our hearts. So what do we do? We spend our lives watching TV, carpooling, working. And if we're honest... Obedience in some areas of our life is a, is a real downer. And so we distance ourselves from God. Now, let me illustrate this. I'd like you to go back, if you have your Bibles, to Psalm 4. I'll put it on the screen. I want you to see the intersection of... Um, Joy and obedience here, even in pain. It's a vivid, vivid illustration from the life of David. So here we see the joy of obedience and the joy of trust. Now, most scholars put Psalm 3 and Psalm 4 together, uh, saying they're one entity. And so we get the context for Psalm 4 from the heading of Psalm 3. And the heading of Psalm 3 tells us that this is a psalm of David when he fled from his son, Absalom. Absalom was trying to kill his father, David. David was no longer the king. Absalom, through treachery and deceit, had become the king. And Absalom knew in order to consolidate his power, he had to kill his father. And that was his plan. Now, you think you have family problems. But what I want you to understand is David is is in one of the darkest moments in his life. Can you imagine? And so I want you to see one verse. I want you to see how the ESV translates Chapter 4, verse 7. Let's put this up on the screen. David is speaking. He's speaking in the context of this agony, and he says, you have put more joy in my heart (laughs) than they have when their grain and wine abounds. You have given me more joy right now than everybody else has at harvest. Now, how in the world can David say this? I mean, his family is shattered. He is in danger of being murdered. And the reason David can say this is because at the deepest levels of his heart, I'm talking about his heart, neither his joy nor his peace is tethered to his circumstances, but it's tethered to the one who rules over his circumstances, Jesus Christ, God the Father. The Spirit. So David here, incredible statement, says, I'm resting in joy because your joy is greater than my circumstances. And David is obeying in joy. 
David is probably in a cave, a dark place. What is your cave? Your dark place right now. Where is life most difficult? What is that pressure point? Can you say with David, my joy abounds because I'm not living horizontally, I'm living vertically? And that move is called faith. So let's continue. Let's come to our last distinctive. And what does John tell us it is? Well, he tells us remarkably that faith overcomes the world. This is verse 4. It's verses 4 and 5. Let me just read verse 4. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Now, these words, overcome, which is repeated, and victory, all come from one Greek word, and it's the Greek word Nike. Nike was the Greek goddess of victory. The Greek goddess who had wings. So John is saying to these Christians in their Greco-Roman culture, that your faith in Christ is your Nike. It's what gives you wings. It's how you overcome the press of the world around you. Now let me talk about the world for a minute. The Bible teaches us to enjoy the world, engage the world, and to evangelize the world. But we will never be useful if we are being deeply shaped by the world, the world is informing our values. And you and I as Christians, even as Christians, will always, always be shaped, uh, influenced, um, deceived by the world unless, unless we're intentional not to let that happen. So let's back up. Go to chapter 2 and verse 15. John says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. Now, we've already looked at this. I just want you to note how strong verse 15 is. Look at this quote from C.J. Mahaney in his book, Worldliness. Look at what he says about this verse. There is nothing subtle about this sentence. It's abrupt and to the point, only 10 words. It is categorical, do not love the world. It's comprehensive, do not love anything in the world. And it's intrusive, strategically aimed at whatever we desire most, anything in the world. Today, the greatest challenge facing American evangelicals is not persecution from the world, but seduction by the world. Now, again, I want you to understand when John is saying do not love the world, by world, he does not mean God's creation. He does not mean the blessings of modern society, medicine, economic, political, family, social structures. World here, when he says do not love the world, and again, when he talks about the world in our section in chapter 5, is a reference to the vast human system alienated from and hostile to God. 
It's all the people, all the structures that pursue life, pleasure, and opportunity completely and totally apart from God. And so the question John is addressing is how do we overcome that system? How do we overcome those structures? How do we overcome the pervasiveness and the power of the world as followers of Jesus Christ? And his answer is by faith. Faith. Joyful faith in Jesus Christ that flows from your heart. Now, don't misunderstand. This is not automatic. This is not easy. Man, I have... um, Good moments in overcoming the world, and I have really bad moments when I'm overcome by the world. Good days, bad days, we all do. John is assuming this spiritual battle when he says it's your faith that overcomes the world. Because in every Christian, there's a battle going on inside between the flesh and the spirit. And there's battles going on outside between what the world wants, what Satan wants, and what what God wants. And John argues it's faith that overcomes temptation. It's faith that overcomes satanic attack. It's faith that overcomes your flesh. And it's faith that overcomes our chronic sense of spiritual failure. I'm not good enough. I blew it again. I'm unworthy as a Christian. Now let me just say something about spiritual failure because it's such an issue for all of us, including me. Uh, Last Sunday, we went to church in Denver, and then in the afternoon, we were hiking in the foothills of the Rockies with our kids, our our two daughters that live in Denver, and their two husbands, and our two grandkids. Our oldest grandchild is Eliza. Eliza is now six, but when we hiked in the Rockies a couple years ago with Eliza, it did not go well. I mean, it did not go well. She was four. So as Rhonda and I are driving to the parking lot at the trailhead, and we've, there's several of us in a couple different cars, I said to Rhonda, all right, what's your bet on how long Eliza lasts? And Rhonda said, I'll give her 15 minutes. I said, well, I'll, I'll give her 20. And Eliza hiked joyfully for 60 minutes and could have gone a whole lot longer, except we decided to turn around. Now, I had, true confession, I had bribed Eliza with ice cream. It's a biblical concept, right? (laughs) Parenting by manipulation. And so Eliza took off, and she was leading, and uh, some of our adult kids were saying, Eliza, you're being such a great leader on this hike. We're coming down the mountain. We're just 30 yards from the parking lot. And Eliza misses a step, and she stumbles, and she falls, and she skins her elbow, and she starts crying. Mom and dad step in, comfort Eliza. Eliza's okay, and puts Eliza in her car seat. And I walk over when Eliza's kind of sitting there, a little teary-eyed, and I give her a kiss, and I say, good job. And you know what Eliza's? She was five, now she's six. A five-year-old said to me at the time, she said, Grandpa, I am a terrible leader. Now that's how we all feel. How we often feel about our Christianity. I'm a terrible example. I'm a terrible disciple. 
Because we've stumbled, we've skinned our elbow. We're in a dark place, we're angry. We succumb to temptation, to lust, to attitudes. And what happens is we begin to define our Christianity by our failure. I mean, I'm talking 59 minutes and 30 seconds of joy and 30 seconds of stumbling. And we focus on those 30 seconds rather than God's grace. We define ourselves by our failures, not by God's grace. So what are we to do? Well, just real quickly, we are to admit our brokenness. That's a biblical concept of confession. We bring it to God and we keep bringing it to God. God, here I am again and I blew it in this area. I confess it to you. And then we forsake it. We ask God for the grace to turn from it. That's a concept of repentance. Then we make a move and we look We take our eyes off ourselves and our failure and we look to Jesus and his forgiveness and his glory and his grace. And that move, when you take your eyes off yourself and you look to Jesus, is what the Bible calls faith. And it's faith that overcomes the world. It's faith that overcomes failure. So we walk by faith, not by failure. You see, worldliness dismisses Christ diminishes Christ. Faith magnifies Christ. And I, and I promise you, the world will lose its appeal to the extent you press the gospel into your heart. Now, I want you to see an illustration of this. I want you to see this quick video. The woman here, her name is Jackie Hill Perry. She's a former lesbian and now Christian, as she will say, She's an author, a poet, and a speaker. Let's run this, you guys. Let's watch this. I remember the moment I learned that the gospel didn't stop at conversion. I was a new believer, all of 19 years old, with a backbone full of zeal and a mouth not yet skilled in grace. I was afraid to read the Old Testament because I thought it to be nothing more than genealogies and commandments. I had yet to taste of God coming to life in its pages between the cracked sea and a bloody doorpost pointing to a bleeding God, the Passover, and its prophetic posture did not prostrate me at that stage, but I loved him. Not because I was told to, but because something happened in me that made me unlike all that I thought love for God to be. I thought it duty before. Why would any sane soul lay aside sin to worship God, but after meeting him, I knew better. I understood by experience before doctrine that Jesus had my affections, but it wasn't too long after that that I learned that this body, this flesh was still Jackie before her resurrection. It was still as dead as death, and it still felt good to die sometimes, and I needed help. I didn't know how to fight these hands, hadn't been trained by war yet, till the woman that discipled me said, Jackie, you know the gospel didn't just save you, but it keeps you. Because of the gospel, you have victory. I had never heard the gospel in that light in my life. If you would have seen my heart at that moment, you would have seen it full of enough joy to explode a smile. The good news was good news again to me that day. I was tempted to lust after a woman. 
with all of her beauty, reminding me of all of the lesbian I knew myself to be 12 months prior. I could not remember one scripture to quote that would distract me from her glance, not one song to sing that would help me look away, but I remember the gospel. I remember my risen Lord and that if death had no dominion over him, then surely I was as free as the sky he ascended to. I did not yet know what the veil being torn meant for me, but I did know that because of Jesus, I was no longer God's enemy, but his child with no shame. That day, I learned so much more than how to fight temptation, but I learned that the gospel is the means by which I learned to live and love. I am now 26 years old with just as much zeal and still not yet skilled in grace, passing on to everyone I meet that, hey, you know the gospel not only saves you, but it keeps you. Ain't that good news? What I wish for you is what Jackie is describing, that you will overcome the world, that you will find joy in obedience because you are pressing the wonder of the death, resurrection, and glory of Jesus Christ, what we call the gospel, into your heart. So it's not just an objective thing. As I said a couple weeks ago, it's a subjective and it's an instinctive thing because you are alive in your union with Christ. You are alive in the love of Christ. Amen? Let me pray. Father, we come to you and marvel at the power of the gospel and what faith, what faith mediated by the Spirit can do in our lives as we look to Jesus. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters, these students, and pray, God, that you would deepen their faith as they look to Jesus. And you would surprise us by opening our eyes to the wonder of his glory. And you would give us incredible moments, incredible uh, experiences of, of victory. And when we fail, when we stumble, when we skin our elbows, oh God, give us the grace not to run from you or distance ourselves from you, but to return to you and say, Father, forgive me. And thank you for your love, your forgiveness in your Son. Amen.